rest of you, please turn in your Bible to the book of James. James chapter 2 is where we will be. If you're wondering where James is, go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and then just start working left, just slowly, and you'll run into the book of James. So we said last week, I've got five Sundays before my surgery, and so last week was one. This will be the second. We're doing one passage out of each of the five chapters of the book of James. Last week was chapters, chapter 1, 1 to 12, encouraging us in the midst of our trials to persevere. And then as I thought about chapter 2, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. This is one of those texts in the New Testament. If you're like me, whenever you read it, it's like that was easy to interpret and, boy, far too easy to apply. It hits you right smack in the face with what it is calling us to do. It's one of those that rubs up against our sinful inclinations. I think what we'll do is just walk right through the text, make some applications along the way, and then maybe come with some final applications. As a good preacher, I've got my points, and they all begin with the letter I, except the last one, because I couldn't figure it out. If you can figure it out for me, that would be wonderful, in case I ever teach it this way again. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, would you help us as we turn our eyes to your wonderful word? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say to us through this passage of scripture. And may it change us forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, I'm calling it the invitation. James is going to invite us to live in a particular way. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's the way the New American Standard translates it. The ESV would say, show no partiality. The NIV, don't show favoritism. The net Bible, do not show prejudice. That word, personal favoritism or partiality, it, it literally in the Greek means to receive the face. Apparently, it, it has the idea, do not respond to someone, treat someone on, on the face on the externals of what comes your way. One said it like this, don't make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, race, etc. Don't make judgments about people. Don't make distinctions based on external considerations what they might look like, what social status they might belong to, what color 
their skin is, where they might have been educated or not. Are they seemingly my kind of people or seemingly not my kind of people? Don't make judgments. Don't make distinctions on people in light of their face, what, what they present on the outside. And he gives a bit of weight to this, I think, with that little phrase, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's one of the interpretive problems of the text. Where does that word glorious go? And some of the translations don't hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord. Others don't hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. New American Standard, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not exactly sure which way we're meant to go with that, but he just seemingly adds that word to maybe add some weight. Maybe here's a few ways it could be understood that in the context that we're about to see, James says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The idea of his glory may be being that Jesus didn't treat you and me like this. He's so glorious. He didn't respond to you and me in light of the face what we presented to him. We were but poor sinners. To think anything other than that is to miss a basic biblical truth that there was nothing in us, nothing that we presented before the Lord that inclined him to like us and save us. No good looks on our part, no academic achievement on our part, no athletic accomplishment, no moral superiority, no great potential he saw in you and me for kingdom impact that made him go, boy, I just got to have him. Boy, I just got to have her. There was nothing about us that we presented that inclined God towards us in his love. In fact, it was all in spite of us. Not because of us, but in spite of everything about us. He is indeed glorious in that way. That his love for us and his acceptance of us is not based upon us. It's based upon his great, great mercy and kindness One thought, if the translation is to be, don't hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, that maybe he has in mind Exodus chapter 34, where Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God had him hide in the cleft of the rock, and God passed by and proclaimed. Remember that? Moses wanted to see his glory, and God said, I'll show you, and he proclaimed truth about himself. And you remember what he led with? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness.
Maybe that's the way it's meant to be understood. And we're supposed to go, boy, he is compassionate. He's gracious. He's full of loving kindness towards people. That's the way we're supposed to be too. We're not supposed to hold our faith with an attitude of personal favoritism or show, show partiality to one and not to another to favor these and not those. Well, that's the invitation. He then gives an illustration in verse 2 and 3. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So this is pretty cool. It's Sunday morning and two visitors came to church. Let's just stop there and say, God, give us visitors to Redeemer. This is wonderful. I met some visitors this morning and it was great to have them with us. One of these visitors, at least the way he presents himself, he's quite rich. He's got a gold ring. He's dressed in fine clothes. The other visitor, though, he, he's not rich, apparently. He's a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, why don't you come sit right over here? Sit right next to me. We got a place for you up front. Oh, you'd rather sit in the back? We got a place for you in the back. Where would you like to sit? We, we got you covered. You sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Essentially, you sit on the floor. Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote an article in, for um, the Gospel Coalition called Make Sunday Mornings Uncomfortable. Three Rules of Engagement at Church. She wrote the article really about three rules, if you will, that her, her husband Brian came up with for the family. Brian and his wife Rebecca come to church on Sunday mornings with a very, very missional attitude. They're coming for the sake of others. And here are their three rules of engagement at church. And I read these and I go, oh, Lord, please make them true of me. Number one, an alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. When you come on Sunday mornings, we are so excited to see our friends. I know that I am. Because you all are not just friends, we're family, right? But at the same time, an alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. You and I come on Sunday mornings not only to see friends, not only to see family, but also to have in the back of our minds, is there anybody here that's all alone that I can connect with? An alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. Second rule of engagement is friends can wait. That one's hard. Because you're visiting with your friends, you're visiting with family. 
and you're catching up and you're hearing funny stories and the like, and, but then there's that alone person, or maybe they're not alone, but they're new. You've never seen them before. In those moments, Rebecca and Brian have said, our friends can wait because we want to connect with that new person or that person who is all alone. And then their third rule of engagement is to introduce newcomers to someone else. As they meet them, they want to try to introduce them to someone else just as quickly as they can. It's pretty good. If I could say right now, one of our applications for all of us here is that every one of us is a greeter on Sunday morning. We've got a handful of greeters, and quite honestly, we need more formal greeters. We need more of you who will say to Mike, our student director who also oversees our greeter ministry, hey, Mike, put us on the list. We will be willing to serve on Sunday mornings on a rotation to serve and to greet at our doors. We need more of that. We need more of you to be willing to serve in that way. But we need all of us to come on Sunday mornings and say, I'm a greeter too. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes or also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and you say you sit here in a good place, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstools. That was the illustration. Now here comes the indictment if you and I do that kind of thing. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Yikes. You ever been out there in the foyer and somebody comes in and whatever it is about them that they present, you're quick to go over and meet them. Maybe they look like you or they dress like you or they just seem to be your kind of people. And so you're excited. Wow, there's a new person that I haven't met yet and they seem to be my kind of people. And so, hey, I'm going to go and meet them. But maybe as you're visiting with your friends or whatever, you notice out of the corner of your eye someone else and for whatever reason, you say, they're not my kind of people. Maybe the clothes that they're wearing, maybe the Quite honestly, the posture of their walk, you know, you can just tell sometimes about people or maybe, maybe you do meet them and just so quickly the, the, you can just tell that they don't talk like you. Maybe they're not as educated as you. Maybe they're not as sharp as you. And, and while you said hello, you know, maybe you quickly move on. We make those kinds of things. James says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves. You've divided the two. Mitch, you've put into one, put one into an acceptable category and the other into an unacceptable category, purely on the face of the matter. Put one into a category you'll be happy to engage with, another in a category you'll simply pass over. You've made distinctions. You've divided the two. And when you do that, James says you've become judges with evil motives or evil reasonings. 
That doesn't sound good. Some of you know when I left Denton Bible Church way back when, year, boy, 20 something years ago, when I left, I asked my pastor, whom I love, can I have one of your Bibles? And he gave me one of his Bibles. And every year, at least back in those days, he would work his way through the entire Bible with his notes on almost every page. And I grabbed it this morning just to see what notes he might have put off in the margin on this particular text. And by verse 4, he had simply written, little act, big evil. It's a little act. Somebody walks in the door, they're not your type of people, and so you just don't do anything. James says you make distinctions among yourselves. You become judges with evil motives. That person's not worthy of my love. That person's not worthy of me welcoming them to Redeemer Community Church, connecting them as best I can into the life of Redeemer. Well, then maybe our next I would be the interrogation. It's like James sits him down and turns on the light. Where were you on the night? All right, he's got, some, he's got some questions he wants to ask them. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? You know, in this particular illustration and probably in the context of this particular church, that was the deal. It was rich and poor. And they would pay special attention to the poor and not so much attention, or to the rich and not so much attention to the poor. And James certainly wanted to address that, but I think we could broaden it, couldn't we? And say, you name the category that you and I are likely to look over others for. And God's got some of them as part of his kingdom people. Maybe they don't dress like you. Maybe they don't look like you. Maybe they don't talk like you. Maybe they don't this, that, or other. Whatever reason it is that keeps you and I from engaging with some based upon some superficial external thing, lo and behold, God's got some of them. He loves them. First Corinthians 1, 26 to 28 Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, nor many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God chooses the poor. God chooses 
the uneducated. God chooses the red, yellow, black, and white. God chooses his kingdom people from any and every crazy category that you and I could come up with. Who are you and I to make those kinds of distinctions about who we will love, who we will welcome, who we will extend the kindness of our God to? It is, here's another I, if you will, incongruous. There's another I word I was working with, but I'll go ahead and throw it in there. It's incongruent with the heart of God, is it not? Congruent means you've got the heart of God here and his love for, for all, and then you've got your heart and mine. And if they're congruent, as God loves them, we love them. But here God had chosen the poor and they were being incongruent. They, they weren't matching up because they were looking over the poor in favor of the rich. It's incongruent for you and me to make distinctions among people just based upon the face of it. Finally, in verse 8, this is where I couldn't come up with an I, but I think it's somewhat of a concluding paragraph to it all. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So there's the call, right? It's, it's up in verse, verse one. Let's not have our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism or showing partiality or the like. Rather, let's love our neighbor as ourself. In this context, let's treat everyone that God brings our way Let's love them as we ourselves would love to be loved. Come back to that. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. On the, ho on the whole, seemingly, I think he might mean this, on the whole, you and I might be doing wonderfully. But if we're showing partiality, we are guilty. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Maybe he's connecting these two, I don't know, but up there in verses two and three, when the rich man came in and the poor man came in, they, they acted, they paid special attention to the one, and they spoke. You sit here in a good place or you stand over there and sit down by my footstool. And so James is coming back to, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. On Sunday mornings, and you all know this and 
if we have time, the, 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 the application of this goes far beyond just Sunday mornings, but here we are, he's talking to the church. So speak and so act on Sunday mornings. People are coming in. Speak to them and act towards them in a way that is consistent with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Wonderful commentator and pastor John MacArthur put it like this. The merciless there in verse 13. A person who shows no mercy and compassion for people in need demonstrates that he's never responded to the great mercy of God. And as an unredeemed person will receive only strict, unrelieved judgment in eternal hell. But the merciful, the, he says, the person whose life is characterized by mercy is ready for the day of judgment and will escape all the charges that strict justice might bring against him because by showing mercy to others, he gives genuine evidence of having received God's mercy. Seemingly, the idea is probably this. If, if, there's, if, if there's a continual attitude in my heart that shows itself in in not being merciful and loving and kind and welcoming to people who come in the door for whatever crazy reasons I might have, if that's a consistent ingrained thing in my soul, it gives evidence that I've never come to know the great love of God in Jesus Christ. Because God has loved me and God's been merciful to me and God has forgiven me and God doesn't treat me based upon what I show up with. That's the good news of the gospel, that in spite of who we are, God loves us through his son, Jesus Christ. But the person who has experienced the mercy of God and his kindness towards us, even when we don't deserve it, that's the kind of person who shows mercy who doesn't respond with personal favoritism, who doesn't show partiality, who, who strives to love one's neighbor as himself. And as such, that will triumph on the day of judgment. One said it's, if, it's as if... Um, oh, I read it this morning, meant to write it down, and I didn't. It's as if the accusations are coming against the believer in the day of judgment and, if you will, mercy comes along and says, no, 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 no. This person has experienced the mercy of God and you can, they can prove it because they've extended the mercy of God to others. Not perfectly, none of us will do that. But the love of God that we've experienced, the mercy of God that we've experienced, the kindness of God that we've experienced, just, it cannot help but extend itself in showing that kind of love and kindness to others. So quickly, I sum up 2, 1 to 13 with love as you'd love to be loved. 
especially when you're prone to be partial. When you're prone to make these judgments and divide people and the like. Love as you would love to be loved. And how would you and I love to be loved? Irrespective of external matters, right? You and I love to be loved, not based upon our looks, not based upon the clothes that we wear, not based upon our socioeconomic status, not based upon our race, our abilities, or anything like that. We don't want to be loved because of any of those kinds of things. We, we want to be loved because we're a person. Love your neighbor as you love to be loved. The culture maybe says to us, what do you look like? How much do you make? How much do you have? What have you done for me lately? What grades did you make? Where did you go to school? What's your job? How many goals did you score? And the Bible says no to all of that. So as we think about Sunday mornings, is that seemingly the illustration that he's using here? Let's, let's recommit ourselves anew. That whether you're formally on the team or not, every one of us is a greeter. Every one of us comes in here on Sunday mornings, as do others. How will you and I respond to them? To go back, uh oh, where'd they go? An alone person in our gatherings is an emergency. Friends can wait, introduce newcomers to someone else. At the end of her article, Rebecca said it like this. So this Sunday, let's take a risk. Let's re reach across the small divides to others as we imitate the one who spanned the great divide for us. Let's urge our friends to do the same because the harvest in our gatherings is plentiful. We may never know what difference a small act of welcome made, but sometimes God lets us see how he has weaved our little acts into much greater, his much greater plan. Last month, I asked our Bible study group to share a time when God had brought blessing to them through hardship. The most moving response for me was from the woman for whom I had left my friend that Sunday. She was talking with a friend, left her friend to go visit with this girl who had just walked in. Lo and behold, her fiance had just dumped her and she was coming to church looking for hope. And she not only met her and welcomed her and had her sit by her, but invited her to her group. The most moving response for me was from the woman for whom I had left my friend that Sunday. Quote, I'm so grateful my fiance broke up with me. If that hadn't happened, I would not have found God. Pretty cool. In all of life, this principle applies everywhere, doesn't it? It applies in your neighborhood. You ever do that? You ever show partiality towards neighbors based upon just something that's, that's my kind of people. They're not so much my kind of people. At the office, everywhere we go, 
I think maybe at least this is calling upon us to have our arms open wide to welcome any and all into the love of God. Students, imagine if as you went to school each and every day, you recognize the other young people at your school, not based on the clothes they wear or the cars they drive or the contours of their face, the shape of their body, but on, but rather based on the fact that they are made in the image of God. That boy, that girl is made in God's image. And imagine if you loved them as you love to be loved. Every one of you young people, I, I, I could bet you want to be loved not based upon what you look like or based upon how many goals you score or based upon what kind of grades you make. You want to be loved simply for you. Imagine if you loved those in your school like that. And all of us, let's imagine if you and I no longer recognized others in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, especially at this church, based on any crazy categories we might come up with. But rather, based upon the fact that they're created in the image of God and he's brought them our way for us to extend the love and kindness of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I think of Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your love for us, your commitment to us was not based upon anything you saw in us. No categories that you had come up with looking for us to check any particular boxes. We all just were lumped into the same box. Sinners. Rebels. Enemies of God. And yet, you've loved us. You showed your great compassion towards us and great loving kindness and you sent your son, Jesus, to live for us, to die upon the cross, to pay the penalty for all of our sins, and then to rise again as the Savior of the world and the Lord over all things. Because of our trust in him, we are forgiven, we are welcomed, we are accepted by you. Father, if there's any here today who've never um, understood that amazing gospel message, the goodness of our God and the mercy of our God and the kindness of our God in sending Jesus into the world to save sinners, all of us, would you open the eyes of their heart now? to see the beauty of Jesus and his great love for them. And Lord, might your mercy and kindness and love so consume us 
that we would never be slow to extend it to others. May we be a place marked by love. As James would say, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Help us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.